The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. Podcast. This is Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. The power of podcasting compels you. The, the power, power of, of podcasting, podcasting compels, compels you. you. We tried. <laughs> yeah, we, we tried. I mean, I guess hopefully those podcasting demons have been cast out now. Yeah, or they can just come hang out with me. I've got a safe house for all demons of all sorts and sizes. Seriously. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us once again on the Scream Kings podcast. And if you can't tell, we're obviously talking about The Exorcist today, which is a classic that I'm kind of surprised we actually haven't talked about yet. This is our 15th episode. That's kind of sad. It took 15 episodes to talk The Exorcist. In its defense, I've been trying to get us to do this episode for quite some time, but... There have just been other kind of more horrific moments and movies that we've needed to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, we just have felt very, well, I guess, compelled um, <laughs> to to talk other things. I know it was going to be actually one of our very first episodes, but yeah. Oh, well. We're here now. What an excellent day for an exorcism. So, The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Some people say this is the scariest movie of all time. And the, I mean, yeah, that's a really wide-held uh, belief. And I may not personally subscribe to that, but I do appreciate it a lot. Nor do I. I think it's a brilliant and almost perfect movie. But the first time I watched it was honestly just a few years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago. Wasn't scared at all. Yeah, like I, I, I feel like it's a well-constructed horror film that, I guess, if you're familiar with horror, kind of generally speaking, it may not hold up as much in terms of being absolutely terrifying. Though I think, regardless, you know, you you still will appreciate the film. Uh, in terms of just its construction, its acting, its writing, everything is is very good. And honestly, it probably had a lot of its kind of fear come into play because it was, in you know my horror knowledge, one of the first kind of demon exorcism movies that really kind of came to be. And I know there are, of course, other ones that predate it, but this is kind of the hallmark, really in-your-face kind of exorcism type of a movie. Yeah, definitely, you know, when, when exorcism or you know, demonic possession was on the screen before. It, it tended to be a little bit more tame. Um, but yeah, they really leaned into making this as visceral and disgusting and, you know, profane and just awful as as it, it uh, as they could possibly manage. Which makes it one of our favorite movies. Agreed. <laughs> Nathaniel, do you want to kind of give some background on the story? It, 
a lot of people don't know that it was a book before it was ever a movie. Yeah, and I think that's a shame because I personally uh, actually prefer the book. Um, so the book was written by William Peter Blatty in, let me find that date. I should have done this earlier. Uh, so it was in 1971. And it was a giant successful blockbuster at the time it was kind of the huge hit book Uh, everyone read it everyone was obsessed with it and i mean it kind of made sense because i mean it was sort of following you know just a few years behind uh some other like big blockbusters of horror that you know kind of dealt with maybe similar themes Uh, for example uh, rosemary's baby came out in the late 60s and then you know by 71 we have the exorcist and i know everyone also really got in on the rosemary's baby craze and so the exorcist kind of felt like a a natural successor but i felt like it it took all of those kind of concepts and went one step further you know especially you know we're we're dealing with you know demonic people or you know demonic creatures and dealing with you know especially the idea of like an evil child but you know, rosemary's baby kind of ends with the baby being born for the most part or you know shortly thereafter while the exorcist you know we're, we're spending most of the the book and film dealing with this possessed you know, kind of evil child or, uh, or so to speak right and rosemary's baby i think holds up quite well Um, And then you have other movies that are kind of coming around the same time, like The Omen, um, that again, all kind of deal with this child who the tables are kind of turned, and now you have this evil, demonic, you know, child, whatever you want to call it. Um, But really, out of the three, The Exorcist stands far above the other two in my mind. I think Rosemary's Baby is a work of art. I think the cinematography in that show is brilliant, and we should honestly probably have an episode about it. Yeah, and and I mean, I felt like the book was also very good as well. Um, and and I mean, and I think why we're seeing these same kinds of themes over and over again is this was kind of the height of the satanic panic. You know, everyone was afraid that their neighbors were worshiping the devil and were going to come and try to stab them in the middle of the night. Well, and you had Anton LaVey this time around kind of formally establish, you know, the Church of Satan. Yes. Um, I was just going to say, though, the two, again, when you compare all three of them, The Exorcist stands out. And I would really like to kind of dive into that in a little bit, you know, after you kind of give us some more background about the book and, and talk about why this horror movie is so iconic and so classic. Well, I feel like so much of of what makes The Exorcist such a powerful piece of horror fiction really does kind of come down to the the source material of the book. It was loosely inspired by a a true case of exorcism, which I guess we can even mention uh, Max actually visited briefly the house where that real case happened. It was so cool. I was in Missouri for some business and it was around October. And so I wanted to do something somewhat Halloween related. And then I saw that the exorcist house was in St. Louis, Missouri. So I went immediately there. Um, And it's just a regular house and a little quiet suburb, essentially kind of has a, a college campus vibe to the neighborhood. All the houses are very similar. They're all really close. 
a lot of trees and overhead and the house itself is just plain old house there was a family who was there at the time i i didn't go knock on their door i'm sure the whoever lives there is tortured enough by people like myself with less shame <laughs> and i just kind of stood outside and kind of looked at it and it, it was nothing crazy so you know that's kind of the cool thing about this story is it, it draws back to horror and you know these crazy supernatural whatever you want to call it things can happen anywhere and it can lead to a book lead to a movie and lead to a legacy honestly yeah how many exorcist films are there now way too many <laughs> yeah it's in fact i should look up how many but so i guess just a little bit more background along those lines you know so he blatty heard you know a little bit about this you know st real life story of, of exorcism you know from that happened in 1949 and because there was like a Jesuit priest involved and it was, you know, like right near the, this college campus in St. Louis, it, you know, kind of all connected in his mind because he heard the story while he was in, uh, in college uh, at Georgetown. And so, and there was, you know, a large Jesuit priest community nearby and all of that. And so he was able to kind of take that idea and then plug it into a place that he knew and kind of ran with it. And so, and, and, you know, there's also other historical things that, you know, kind of helped inspire him, like the uh, British archaeologist uh, Gerald Lancaster Harding, uh, who had, who was involved in, like, uh, excavating the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, who he kind of based Father Marin on. He, he took a lot of these kind of, like, real-life people, all these real-life circumstances, and then kind of connected them all uh, together to form this book. So... Uh, I mentioned that I actually prefer the book over the film. How do you feel about that? You've, you've read it as well. You know, I thought the book was pretty boring until the last third. Um, I, I much prefer the movie over the book. I, the last portions of the book I thought were very, very haunting, very terrifying when the demon's actually beginning to acknowledge um, Father Karras and all that. But up to that point, it felt like there were a lot of weird side plots that were going on the mom and her acting and the detective uh kinderman i believe uh yes it just kind of felt really disjointed with the common theme that there's this exorcist going on but i don't know it wasn't my favorite i thought it was good um and again the the latter part of the book really did kind of spook me a little spook me a little bit i had to stop reading it at 2 a.m in the morning um, as opposed but, to 2 a.m at night or uh, or 2 a.m in, in the afternoon yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah overall i thought it was okay i don't know see for me i i was hooked i mean okay the the prequel chapter where it's father karis you know out in iran or iraq or um kind of yeah iraq it just kind of yeah it didn't hook me right away but as soon as it got into the main story even just a little bit i was in i sat and read that book in one sitting and it terrified me like i would say it is in the top five scariest books i've ever read 
and it stuck with me. And you know, and when I say you know top five scariest books I've ever read, mind you, I've read you know hundreds of horror novels. So that's you know, to to me, it it just it really haunted me. It kept me up at night in a way that I had never experienced with anything by Stephen King or really almost any other author. And I get that. Um, but again, for me, that really only occurred at the latter portion of the book. Um, you know, a big two thirds of it at that just didn't get to me at all. What, what did you find about the entire book that made it scary? I felt like it was kind of the slow burn and build up of, of kind of piecing together what the possession was looking like because you know you see these characters going through their lives and kind of you know doing normal everyday sort of things for them and admittedly you know it's 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 an actress and it's a jesuit priest who doesn't know if he believes in god anymore and you know all of these different characters but in kind of like peripherally you keep seeing this little girl who is doing weirder and weirder things and then you see this, you know, cop who comes, you know, is is called to check out this uh, church that's been desecrated in awful, disgusting ways, and it just keeps getting, I don't know, just the the little pieces really drew me in and and kind of pulled me into that final act. So when you know you see the exorcism scene and all of its intensity and glory, I I really was sold on the idea because, I don't know, you, you just see all the little teeny bits of, of kind of everyday horror that led up to that. Yeah, I guess for me, all of those things that you just mentioned were a lot more fluid and made a lot more sense to me in the movie. Um, I think we should know that the movie and the book are very, very similar. I mean, to be fair, yeah, William Peter Blatty did adapt the screenplay, so. Exactly. And, yeah, I don't know, when I was reading and... Uh, I, the parts, I think, that really slowed me down and slowed my interest in it was anything with William Kinderman, the lieutenant. And and I don't know why it was just it felt so disjointed when he came into the picture. And I understand his purpose. He was kind of solving this murder that was happening and, and all of that. But it just and maybe it's my weird obsession with demons. I just wanted more demon. I wanted more of the background. I wanted more of the story. I wanted I wanted to know more behind who this demon was. Why was this happening? And And I just felt like that wasn't there. Okay, that's, I mean, I I follow that, though, and, and I agree that, like, Kinderman is the least interesting character, which makes it kind of a shame that he's the protagonist of Legion, a.k.a. Exorcist 3. I don't know, it, but just everything else, just the, I, I think especially, you know, with, you know, seeing, like, Chris McNeil doing, you know, ordinary stuff in her, you know, glamorous actress life, and then suddenly, like, having her daughter just, you know, puke on someone at a party. Just, ugh, it's it, Those little things are, are unnerving because they are so everyday, but they stacked in a way that was truly upsetting. And so that's what, what I think at the end of the day made the book really so compelling to me is because those those scenes, I don't know, they, they didn't really haunt me as much in the film. For some reason, but when they when they came up in the book, 
they really stuck with me. Did you read the book or did you see the movie first? I read the book first. And see, I saw the movie first. And so I wonder if it's one of those weird things where, you know, the first impression that you watch kind of cements that. Excuse me, cements that in your head. And that's kind of what you you hold to. Because I agree with you on that account. Like, I think one of the scariest scenes in the entire movie, it's kind of a two-part is where Reagan comes in at the party and she seems to be pretty normal and then she just wets herself in front of everybody. Yeah. You know, as a parent, to have your kid do that, who is, you know, fully in control and all of that, to randomly do this thing, that would terrify me as a parent. And then also the iconic spider crawl down the stairs. That is just brilliant. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and the fact that they actually, like, had a contortionist do this instead of, doing something stop motion or you know one of the other special effects like actually hiring someone to do it made the effect that much better well and it felt so much more authentic as compared to you know the original evil dead where you had this weird claymation thing which was still kind of scary but also you knew it was fake to have someone really do that it messes with your head quite substantially i think yeah and and i feel like when there is a, a stunt like that performed uh, I think it really does make a, a big difference for the actors that are interacting with that because they get they get to see it too. You know, I, I feel really bad for a lot of actors who you know today just are in rooms that everything is green, everyone around them is green. They're talking to a ping pong ball. Like the end result can look really good, but I feel like actually acting with you know a practical effect like that, especially you know a, a person really contorting their body that way. It, it helps the actors give a, a much more genuine, powerful performance in reaction to that. It's It reminds me of the scene from Alien when our lovely alien xenomorph pops out of the guy's chest. None of those actors knew that that was happening at the time. And it really, really, you saw those visceral scares of like, what the hell is going on? And, and you know, that they're actually getting like sprayed in the face with blood and viscera. And, yeah, like that. that's what I think makes alien such a strong film as well is that yeah it's all practical effects um i i mean there are plenty of amazing horror films that don't have practical effects but you i feel like you can tell a difference or you know like that versus you know say that the newer it film there were parts where the digital effects kind of just didn't work that well so i guess let's kind of come back to the opening and talk about are all of these reasons why the exorcist has been such a iconic horror movie you know you you go out on the street and you say what's you know a classic horror movie people aren't going to say hereditary people aren't going to say evil dead they're going to say the exorcist so what is that it factor that it has it meaning the exorcist not the movie it (laughs) (laughs) let's see what i did there uh what special thing does the exorcist have that makes it so set apart from other horrors i think a lot of it is just the caliber of filmmaking you know the fact that they really did go all in on the budget on the effects on the acting on the writing you know it was a film that they really took seriously and it was and and the audience responded i mean you know it it won two oscars which at the time was unheard of with horror movies and it i mean it's still unheard of with horror movies for the most part um unfortunately but it's 
it's just such a well-constructed film that I feel like the first round of, of people who love to go see horror movies in the theaters probably went and saw it. And then they came back and then they came back again with their friends and made everyone go see it. And then it, it blew everyone away because it, it wasn't just some junky slasher movie, you know, 70s teenagers running around in panties in the woods. It was raw and it was, you know, it it, it took all of these things that we care about as members of families and members of society. And it just took all of those things and made those things scary. And, and it did it with, you know, such respect for the material, you know, that, that they actually went all in on it. And, and so I feel like the quality of the film is why it has stuck around. And also I feel like it just was such a big social phenomenon that it has had such lasting power because, you know, a lot of people who were small children at the time, you know, would sneak downstairs while the, their parents were watching Exorcist and watch it. And it would scar them for life. And you hear people tell that story, that kind of story all the time with The Exorcist, more so than almost any other horror movie. All right, and I would have to agree with you, too, that I think a big highlight of why this movie is so iconic is because it is so true to the source material. You know, the book, for as many issues as I think it has, the plot of the movie is, is almost identical. And it's very simplistic in its approach to demon possession. There's no cloven hooves, there's no gates to hell, there's no fire and brimstone, no weird demonic languages, so on and whatnot. And I think that is, it really set the bar for all the future exorcism movies that were going to come from this. Uh, and they all don't do a very good job at replicating how simplistically perfect the exorcist is. Was there anything else about it that, that you feel makes it so iconic, though, like that that gives it this level of lasting power over everything else like it. I think you had a good point when you were talking about, you know, there are certain horror movies that I think come out while we're children that really stick with us. And where this was such a well put together film and a lot of the people in our life saw it when they were kids and now are kind of either our age or older, it really stuck with them. And it's just almost one of those nostalgic things that when people think of horror in their childhood, they think of this movie. And I think it's left a wonderful, wonderful legacy because of that. Or I guess, are there any things about the, the film itself that, that really um, stood out to you? I mean, you mentioned two scenes in particular, but like, are, are there other aspects of the film that, that really stuck with you? Or, and also, are there things that you don't like about it as much? I feel like I've kind of already touched on the things I don't like. I really don't feel the Lieutenant Kinderhook or Kinder... I can't keep his name straight tonight. Kinderman? Kinderman. I think his plot feels somewhat contrived. Um, I almost would have preferred the book and the movie to just center around Father Karras, Reagan, and the mom. Um, Obviously with the supporting characters involved as well. But yeah, Kinderman, I just kind of felt was like a, I don't know if Laddie was maybe afraid that the the book slash movie was going to be too dark and scary. So we had to add some sort of mystery Scooby-Doo element <laughs> to it. Scooby-Doo, that, that feels like a pretty mean critique, but huh. um, yeah, I just, I don't love that part. Um, as far as I go, though, as parts that I, I, I just love. 
there's, of course, the classic vomit scene where Reagan spews the pea soup all over the priests. I think that's brilliant. I love how at the very end of the movie, when Karis and Marin are coming into the room, you can see their breath and it it's this visual kind of the room is ice cold. I think that was a subtle scare, but really was done well with this movie. Um, and you don't really see that in a lot of other demon movies, this ice cold feeling. It's it's not very common from what I, I've seen anyway. Yeah. And I actually want to talk about both of those, uh, those things as well. Uh, mostly just because I have fun little facts about kind of how they achieve those effects and all that because I've done way too much uh, horror trivia research for uh, my uh, daily horror fact uh, every every October. Before so, you get there, I do want to do a special shout out. I know you weren't super in love with the beginning, um, but the movie where they show the image of the demon that possesses Reagan, and I'll talk about the demon here shortly. I loved that. It just spoke to me on a spiritual level. <laughs> I like. I get why it's presence. It just, I don't know. To me, this little you know adventure in Iraq and just you know going and doing. I don't know. Like to me, it, it almost felt like what it was insinuating was that Father Karras, by doing archaeology, somehow set it out into the world, and that seems kind of silly to me yeah i i can get that i i guess i'm more just saying that the the image that they used of the demon is an authentic image it wasn't something mm -hmm. they made up or created and and i don't know i just am kind of a glutton for the occultism and everything there are things about it i liked but as a whole it just kind of felt like it was like a weird explanation for something that didn't need to be explained to me yeah i can i can agree with that but um, going into the you know kind of behind the scenes movie magic of those two uh, scenes that you mentioned the the pea soup and uh, just like the the icy breath, I really like. Well, so so the icy breath with it is they actually refrigerated the whole room, which I think was really awesome. Just you know in terms of just attention to detail, I I love that they actually went to that level, and and I, I feel like that yeah that those are the kind of details that really make the difference between this film and so many others and also i with the the pea soup how it actually like hits him in the face that wasn't intended they accidentally pressurized the hose a little bit too much so it was supposed to just get on his robes but it hit him in the face and they decided to roll with it so i think that's awesome that is cool i did not know that part i knew about the the coldness but wow that's cool and i love too all of the kind of weird urban legends surrounding the production of the movie. You know, there's all these stories that you hear when you are looking for fun facts about how everyone thought the set was haunted and people died, apparently. And whether that's true or not, I think it speaks in volumes to the caliber of a horror movie to induce those kind of creepy stories for something that everyone on the scene knows is fake, but you're all collectively participating in this dark material that you're, I don't know, I think your brain starts making stuff up. I just think it's great. And and yeah, this film, probably more than almost any other, has so much of the, oh yeah, the set was really haunted kind of thing around it, which is just a lot of fun at the end of the day in it terms is. of just trivia. I'm sure it might not have been fun dealing with weird crap while making a movie, but you know, whatever. Right, right. 
that's the risk you take when you adapt the Exorcist. Okay, so I guess before we launch into uh, a little bit of the sequel book, Legion, slash the sequel movie, Exorcist 3, how about we launch into your occult corner and hear a little bit more about this Pazuzu guy? Yeah. So again, all demon movies are my favorite. Uh, and particularly this one because they they treat the demon very subtly. They drop a name here or there, but they don't go into this huge long backstory, which I wanted, but at the same time, I think the subtlety behind it was very smart because it made you research, it made you do kind of your legwork. So in the in this movie, the demon that is mentioned to, you know, kind of be the cause of all of this is Pazuzu, P-A-Z-U-Z-U. And it's a common misconception that there is another demon by the name of Zozo or Zuzu, which is typically summoned through use of the Ouija board, and they're actually separate entities. Uh, good old Zozo. Good old Zozo. Don't get me started on Zozo. If anyone wants a delightful thing that they should look up relative to Zozo, just type in the words Scatman Zozo <laughs> into uh, YouTube. You'll find a thing from one of my very favorite podcasts, My Brother, My Brother, and Me. And it's hilarious. So that's just a fun little aside. Anyway, proceed. <laughs> Um, so Pazuzu uh, is actually a Mesopotamian demon. He is actually a demon, which is nice. Uh, kind of, uh, he controls the southwest wind, um, and he's also known for bringing famine during the dry seasons and locusts during the rainy seasons. Uh, a lot of people were able to invoke him through the use of amulets, not Ouija boards. Uh, Ouija boards is a whole nother topic that we need to do on one of our episodes because I got a lot of things to say about Ouija boards. Yes, that'll be a very soon episode. <laughs> um, and although Pazuzu is considered to be an evil spirit, he can also drive and frighten away other more evil spirits. Um, so he can kind of, if you want to use the term, be seen as an anti-hero is what I'm going to roll with because I'm friends to all demons. <laughs> um and really that's that's about it for pazuzu he's not you know this huge celebrated demon you know payment from hereditary i think is even more widely known in the occult region as pazuzu i think pazuzu gets a lot of um flack for being in the exorcist as weird as that sounds uh, but again, he's not found in the Lesser Key of Solomon. He's not found in a lot of the other grimoires that kind of lay out how to summon summon demons. And I really think the reason behind that is is because Pazuzu kind of belongs with a group of quote unquote demons that who originally started out as Mesopotamian deities. You have Pazuzu who, yes, was a demon, but is also a deity in this religion. And you've got a slew of other other deities who have had their name and had their culture and kind of had their, their way of life, for lack of a better term, kind of warped and twisted into demonic figures, um, primarily by, unfortunately, the earlier Christians. Um, but it's ironic, too, because even though they were warped and kind of changed, those changes remained stable, and you find those in big demonic grimoires like the Lesser Key of Solomon. So 
it's kind of this weird paradox of they didn't start out as demons, then they turned into demons, and now everyone just agrees that they are official demons and you can summon them. It just, it doesn't make sense in my mind. And it kind of, for me, shows that a lot of this is, is man-made in some aspects, and which is why I don't really fully endorse or believe in a lot of this stuff. And whatever your beliefs are, that's that's totally fine. Um, but I did just kind of pull up a short list of other Mesopotamian slash Syrian deities who have been warped or turned into very potent and figurative demonic forces in today's society. Um, the biggest two, I think, are Baal and Beelzebub. The names are kind of interchangeable. Um, Beelzebub made his mark on history in the wonderful Bohemian Rhapsody sung by Queen. <laughs> um, but also started his acting career in the Bible. Um, we all know Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, Prince of Hell. He, you read about him in Milton's Paradise Lost. He's a very, very celebrated demon. He got a start as a Philistine god. Another one that is really, really popular is Lilith. Lilith, again, comes from the same region's mythos as a Lilithu, which essentially is a succubus. Um, she gets her kind of fame as the first wife of Adam, who was too independent and made her own decisions, and so God rejected her, and she became essentially the pseudo-wife of Lucifer and became mother of the beasts and mother of the succubi and the incubi and, and all of that. And, and doesn't that basically come from the fact that in the book of Genesis, they say that God made man and woman and then later on, uh, you know, a few verses down, so, you know, it goes into Adam was created and then Eve was made from his rib. Right, right. And, and that point right there is kind of what I'm trying to get at is there these all of these different cultures and religions out there who kind of have their own spin on these stories that have been around for so long. Um, there's another another one that I have written down is the Lotan, which is this kind of dragon, giant sea creature in, again, the same area that you have Baal and Beelzebub and Pazuzu and the Lilithu. And eventually, this Lotan becomes kind of the the inspiration for the Leviathan, which you find in the Bible as kind of this symbol of Satan and symbol of this fallen angel who's this dragon and this monster. Uh, as you move more kind of into the Middle Ages and and the early you know colonization of North America, Leviathan turns into his own demon. In the Lesser Key of Solomon and even the Necronomicon, you can find ways to summon Leviathan himself. So it kind of turned into this mythological creature, turned into the symbol for Satan, turned into its own deity. Similar cases are with the dragon of Mesopotamia, Tiamat, who is a, a protector who again was turned into a very, very terrible demon. You have Behemoth, who's kind of the opposite of the leviathan who you know symbolizes the earth and the carnal desires of this earth and this world and again as you get later into demonology behemoth becomes his own persona which just it, it's intriguing to me that these things happen to these these ideas 
and finally, a very a common one again, which comes from the Bible, is Moloch, um, which you know is this supposed demon that demanded children sacrifices. Um, but again, it's a Canaanite god who, yeah, was associated with child sacrifice. That's not great. Um, <laughs> but again... We do not endorse child sacrifice. We do not endorse child sacrifice in any of its forms. <laughs> um, but Moloch was very synonymous with the Phoenician god Kronos, um, you know, who ate his kids. You know, there's all of these these similar patterns and similar beliefs that kind of intermingle. And as humanity evolves, we just give them new names, which is fascinating to me. So moral of the story is Pazuzu, you're welcome in my house. As long as you don't make me throw a pea soup every night. Yeah. No one, no one wants to puke at all, especially pea soup. I do sleep warm, though, so if you'd like to drop the temperature of my bedroom, please do. <laughs> well, the only problem with that is that you might start levitating above the bed, and then it kind of... Then you might be a little bit too cold, because the sheets will fall off. You know, problems. I'll just adjust my sleep number mattress. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you could just adjust your thermostat. <laughs> There you go. The more you know. I know. Now I've like invited Pazuzu into my house. I feel like I need to burn white sage and sprinkle some holy water. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that'll work because you basically said that he's welcome anytime. So that would include post white sage burning. Uh, I'll just do some follow up legwork in my house. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just saying you stepped in it there. <laughs> there you go. Um, do you want to go in and talk about your literary corner? Give us some some information, some background on some of the other work that The Exorcist is kind of inspired? I don't know. Is that the right word? So, like, kind of what other stuff came from it? I guess let's just hear about the sequel to the book that you have a lot oh. of feelings about is what I'm getting at. Oh, okay. So, let's talk about Legion. Then the killer stuffed her body with... Uh other materials and sewed her back up other materials rosaries so legion uh, was written also by william peter blatty it was written in 1983 so uh, for those of you who paid attention earlier that's what 12 years later so uh, it took a little while before he ended up writing it and it is a very different sort of book. I, I picked it up very excited, thinking, oh man, I'm going to like have another book that's going to like keep me up all night. It's going to be like The Exorcist all over again. And I honestly didn't love it. Um, there, there are some fun, cool ideas in it. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, the biggest problem is that the least interesting character from the first book, Kinderman, is the main character. So, yeah. Hmm. The, the basic gist of Legion, and I'm going to go into it a little bit uh, in, in more detail than we did with The Exorcist, just because I think uh, people tend to be less acquainted with Legion slash uh, the film version, which is uh, The Exorcist 3, which was also uh, adapted and directed this time by William Peter Blatty. Uh, so basically, it's that there is a serial killer going around. It's called the Gemini Killer. Uh, very heavily 
kind of pulling from the ideas of, of the real life Zodiac killer. And so he, it, and, and I think this is partially maybe in response to the fact that in um, real life, in one of the letters that the Zodiac killer wrote to the San Francisco Chronicle, he referred to The Exorcist as being the best satirical comedy I, that I have ever seen, is what he said in that letter. That's kind of creepy. Yeah, he's kind of a creep. Um, I know what I'll be doing with my free time tonight, looking up Zodiac Killer stuff. Yeah, I mean, he he's not the most interesting serial killer, but he's not the least interesting either. Um, but yeah, so... <laughs> the things you hear on a horror podcast... <laughs> Hey, I'm just saying, like, I've done research on many serial killers, and I don't know, he was kind of not that interesting. If you want a, a, a really a lot more interesting one, maybe pick up something like I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is a true crime book about the Golden State Killer who just recently was caught. I just re- uh, listened to that one and enjoyed it very much. But anyway, that is a tangent. <laughs> I'm just going to kind of pull a little bit from the Wikipedia. So credit uh, to the Wikipedia contributors. Uh, so I'm just going to read this kind of basic uh, plot introduction because it explains it much better than I could. Uh, so the storyline is a mix of horror and whodunit with a police detective, Lieutenant Kinderman, investigating a series of murders that all have the hallmarks of a serial killer who was shot by police, but whose body hit, uh, was never recovered many years previously. The slayings have a blasphemous theme to them, such as a child crucified, a priest decapitated, and other such things. Uh, Kinderman's investigations lead him to a mental asylum where there are a number of suspects, including a psychiatrist and one of his own patients. There, Kinderman begins to find links between the victims and events in the previous novel, The Exorcism of the 12-Year-Old Girl, Reagan. Uh, Kinderman entertains philosophical thoughts of his own, such as trying to work out the concept of evil or how the concept of evil specifically related to the murder fits in with God's plans for humanity. Kinderman frequently alludes to uh, his favorite novel, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. So, and he regularly goes off on philosophical tangents. So everything that you probably found annoying about Kinderman is just put in a microscope in this one. Um, You spend a lot of time in his head and he is, about as annoying of a pseudo-intellectual philosopher kind of guy as, as you'll ever get. Admittedly, it's it's actually kind of light on demonic possession. So it's, you know, there's this serial killer, and yeah, everything that, that they're doing is blasphemous. You know, there's, yeah, there's crucifixions and a decapitated priest and all sorts of stuff like that. The demonic possession stuff kind of is only semi-present in the book. Uh, they, they bring it forward a lot more in the movie, uh, because I think the studios were basically like, hey, um, if we're going to call this movie uh, a sequel to The Exorcist, we need to actually like make it be at least a little bit a sequel to The Exorcist. Uh, so they added in a, an exorcism scene that wasn't there previously. But yeah, so it's it's a lot less of the demonic possession and a lot more of kind of a, a murder mystery. And admittedly, so there are there are parts uh, of both the, the book and, and the film that are scary. Uh, for example, there's a really iconic part of the film where the killer is kind of has has sheets draped over them, kind of like a, a classic, you know, ghost. And they have this just giant pair of I think it's scissors, and they just like 
you see this nurse walk into this room, and then a few seconds later, you know, it's it's this empty hallway, and you see this, you know, killer walk in after her, just holding this giant knife in front of him, and it's a really chilling scene. But yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of weird stuff in the movie too. There's a whole section that's basically in this like heaven dream world thing. There's like angels with wings and all sorts of weird stuff. It's 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 different, that's for sure. Um, I would say probably of all of the Exorcist sequels and prequels and all that stuff that have have come out, it's probably the best out of that. Uh, but it really doesn't hold a candle to the original film or book. I'd say if you're a hardcore Exorcist fan, yeah, maybe pick up the book or or watch The Exorcist 3. Uh, It's going to be more worth your time than any of the other stuff that's in the franchise, probably. But know that it's not going to be the same uh, caliber of experience. All right. Well, I think Pazuzu has joined me prematurely because this is the third time my internet has gone kaput. So I'm pretty sure he's now taken residence in my laptop. Or at least your router. Uh, something's gonna, gonna be burning here shortly. So before I disconnect from the podcast again, I did want to just kind of go over the, our screams and our crowns for this movie. Yes. So I guess what I'll, I'll give screams and crowns for Exorcist 3 as well, but let's do the exorcist first before i get disconnected though i did want to just say my piece and then i will let you nathaniel take it from here if that works sounds good to me all right so for the exorcist for crowns i would have to give it like a 9.5 and not because it's the most perfect movie out there but because of the legacy that it's left it's a brilliant movie the acting is incredible there are some plot aspects that i don't agree with but overall, it's a pretty damn perfect movie. Yeah, and again, I think the testament against it is the legacy that it's given. And the you think of a horror movie, and you usually will think of The Exorcist, or at least it will come to mind. As far as screams go, I want to say a seven, maybe. Just because when I saw it originally, I guess I may have already been desensitized enough. (laughs) It didn't really scare me like other movies have. The practical effects were incredible. Everything that was put into the movie as far as elements to scare you was done well. But again, it just didn't terrify me like The Evil Dead did or even Hereditary. Those movies I thought had a lot more fear associated with them. And I mean, I, I guess I would probably have to give it a seven as well. It's it was that I I sat back and I, I said, huh, intellectually this is scary, but I wasn't necessarily like shaking in my boots. But that's probably because of you know my horribly twisted brain and not because the movie failed to actually be scary. And then as far as crowns go, I'm gonna give it an eight. I really really like the film, but at the end of the day, it's just not one that I'm going to watch over and over and over and over again i really like it i I do watch it fairly regularly but if i want to just like sit down and like watch a really good horror movie it's not my go-to that's fair i i would agree with that it's not something i would watch routinely but that said i mean i definitely feel like it it deserves the oscars it won uh so it won best adapted screenplay which yeah and um it also won best sound which eh, yeah i guess 
And with that, before Pazuzu takes me over once more, I am going to sign off and start reading my demonology book so I know how to defend myself against him. Okay, so I guess farewell, Max. I will wrap things up and also give my thoughts on my, my final rankings of Legion. So, Adios, friends. Stay spooky. Adios. Okay, so for Legion, I'm going to have to do probably in terms of crowns i would say eh, let's say a four it's an okay movie it's nothing special but it's you know it's watchable there's enjoyable moments and as far as screams go i gotta give it another four there are moments now if i were dealing with uh i'm just gonna note you know as, as i referenced earlier that the book uh, the Exorcist is something that I find absolutely terrifying. So if I could give that one Screams and Crowns, I would give those both 10s, but we don't really do that with the book for some reason. So just take that with a, uh, for what it's worth. So I guess finally, i um, just going to wrap up with kind of the, the usual uh, information of where you can uh, continue to find us online. Uh, but before that, I also just want to note that I'm very deeply upset that Tony Collette uh, got snubbed uh, at the Golden Globes for Hereditary. That's stupid and horrible, and she should win all of the awards. Uh, hopefully this doesn't happen again with the Oscars. If so, well, then all of the good that the Oscars... Uh, all, the, all the good progress the Oscars made last year, uh, and if you want more on that, listen to our episode called Horror and the Oscars. All of that will have been undone, because her performance is one of the best performances I've ever seen in any movie ever, regardless of genre. So, yeah, the Golden Globes, you can suck it. Finally, uh, yeah, you can find us online. Uh, so I am NJ Darkish on Twitter, and Max is Crowley Fiend. Uh, so C-R-O-W-L-E-Y-P-H-O-E-N. Uh, we are also uh, accessible via at Scream Kings Pod. You can also find us on Facebook. Just type in Scream Kings Podcast. Uh, we have an Instagram that Max occasionally updates, uh, at Scream Kings Pod. We have a Patreon, which is uh, Scream Kings Pod, or patreon.com slash Scream Kings Podcast. So if you like the show and want to hear more and maybe hear more with a little bit better sound quality or, or things like that, uh, anything that you donate would be you know, put immediately back into the show to help pay for hosting fees, to help us get better equipment. So definitely consider that, especially this wonderful, uh, generous time of the year. That is really it for me. Um, thank you for listening and stay spooky and don't be like Max and don't invite demons to come and possess your electronic equipment. <laughs> <laughs>